was recorded live okay we all know what that sound means usually we're live from area 51 tonight i am live from an rv park in an undisclosed location somewhere in new york state at the former site of callahan's cross time saloon welcome to tonight's <laughs> edition of sci-fi saturday night tonight our second author's retrospective the work of robert anson heinlein our special guest tonight is friend, compatriot, and biographer of Heinlein, and spectacular author in his own right, Mr. Spider Robinson. Spider, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very kindly, and I'm glad to be aboard. I, ah. I must uh, make one tiny correction, though. The, the, the real biographer for Robert is a, is a fellow named Bill Patterson, who is just about to publish volume one of Robert's autobiography, and it's awesome. Oh. Ah. Uh. That that's going oh, to be a spectacular piece of work. Oh my God! Wow! So the guest has to correct she don't put the of in it. <laughs> <laughs> Started off easy, X. Go easy, but we're going really into bashing me. It's okay. I am the Dome. Joining me tonight on the podcast from the Austin Brighton Hellmouth outside of Boston. Welcome, Kriana. Hello. And from the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, Illustrator X and the Dead Redhead. Hello. Good evening, everyone. From Erie, Indiana, Hello. our best editor, Awake by Java. That's a me. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'd also like to introduce a couple of special guests we'll have with us for a few minutes on the show tonight. Jan Schroeder, who she is and what she does, will become apparent momentarily. And also joining us in a few minutes, gifted artist and friend of the show and good friend of all of ours, Peter Vinton. Good evening. Uh, hey, Peter. Hey. Six years ago when I was doing the show on terrestrial radio, uh, the woman who booked the guest for us asked me if I had a special list that of people that if I could and, you know, anything could happen, who would I love to have on the show? Uh, I found the list this afternoon. It, I thought it was six. Evidently, it was only five. The list was Arthur C. Clarke, who at the time was still alive, Joss Whedon, who in fact still is alive, Spider <laughs> Robinson, Ben Bova, who we did eventually get on the show, and Sarah Michelle Geller, who for obvious <laughs> reasons we never did. Six years later, I am so very, very pleased to welcome Spider Robinson to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, sir. The feeling is mucilage. <laughs> your list. Now, as as I'm glad you were able to get Santa Boy. I was able to get who? Ben. I'm glad you guys were able to get Ben Bova. Yeah. It, it, if it, it weren't was, for Ben, I wouldn't be here. You know, it was very interesting because we had a three-hour show back then, and we had Ben scheduled for a 45-minute segment, and about a half hour into, we just started bumping everybody else off. We kept them on for two and a half hours. Hmm. Yeah, Ben's so, amazing. Uh, he never runs out of jokes, and he never runs out of great stories. 
Uh, he, he was just just he and was a gentleman. And an absolute gentleman on top of an it. An absolute gentleman. Um, Once now, uh, early on in our relationship, I was first getting to know Ben. There came a time when uh, we were a bunch of us were all sitting in a restaurant at a Worldcon, and it was the the most expensive restaurant in the hotel, and we were there to hear the music, which was very good music. And Barbara Bova, Ben's wife, who has unfortunately since left the party, uh, Barbara looked up and saw some kids that they knew standing in the doorway, swaying back and forth to the music. And she automatically started to wave and call out to them and say, hey, Joe and Jane or whatever, come on over here, come on and sit down. And Ben instantly, without even thinking about it, without even giving it a thought, put his hand on her, on her shoulder and said, Barbara, hold up, look at the way they're dressed. Look at the way we're dressed. Why are they standing in the doorway listening to the music? Because they can't afford to come in and sit down and have even one lousy drink at the prices that they charge in this rat trap. So if they see you wave, they're going to feel like they got to come in and blow their weekend's budget on a drink they don't want. It's kinder to not notice them. And uh, once he'd run it down, Barbara understood it, of course, and I got it instantly. And it was, but Ben never has to think about stuff like that. He's just always aware of the feelings of everyone in the room. You know, it was funny because we were uh, discussing what at the time was his latest book, and the basis of the technology in that book was a space elevator. And we were talking about, you know, yes. the, the hard science involved with, you know, that he put into getting it into his work of fiction. And just as we were going to a commercial yeah. break, he said, you, you know, they're building one of those. <laughs> we went to commercial and I said, are you, are you serious? And he went, yeah, here's the guy's name. I'll tell him you're calling him. <laughs> it was, you know, it's the... Wow. Yeah, it was, it was one of those, you know, light bulb goes off moments. It was amazing. Hey, you know what? Before we go down that, that trip down memory lane, um, I believe there's an auction going on right now. Oh, Ooh, yes, my. there might be. Okay, let me take a minute and introduce Jan. Um Folks, listeners, friends of the show, friends of Spider, if you're not aware, Spider's wife, herself a gifted author and dancer, Gene Robinson, is battling cancer. As anyone knows who has a loved one in that position, it drains the soul and the body of everyone around them. In an attempt to give back to two people who have given so much to so many for so long, we here have been working with various authors and artists over the past few months on a very special project. I'd like to introduce Jan Schroeder. Jen has been working with the cast and crew here at Sci-Fi Saturday Night for the past months for the uh, continuation of the I Dream for Gene charity auction. Jan, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Hi, Jen. Can you tell us about how you got involved with the I Dream for Gene charity auctions? Yeah, sure. Uh, what had happened is that I became aware of a, a benefit uh, function that they were going to be doing for Jeannie last fall and I had previously done auctions to help out other people and so I contacted the lady in charge of the benefit and said hey you've got a silent auction how about some eBay auctions and she took me up on it gladly and I started you know, writing the websites and hitting the science fiction sites that I know and as usual, the fan community came through, but even more than that, the artistic community has really come through, and I've been astounded 
at how generous everybody has been. You and me both, Jens. So right now, as we're talking, 25 auctions are going up on eBay. They are all up live, by the way. And these are everything from jam sketches from both Boston Comic Con and Granite Con in, uh, in, in New Hampshire. Donated pieces of artwork, donated books, donated signed comics, donated prints, amazing stuff that you can see on our website. And how can they find it on eBay? The easiest thing to do is when you're on your the, the My eBay page, toward the top of the screen, right uh, to the right of the search bar, you can see a uh, button for advanced search. And if you hit that, you'll come to a page where you can do a seller search, where you can find uh, auctions by your favorite sellers. And my seller name is Dream for Genie, and that's J E A N N E auctions. And also and on our website, right on our website, there is a link on the charity auction posting that is uh, bolded out. If you click on that, it takes you to every one of the auctions that you have up. And what's really cool is all of ours are up there right now. And I'm going to actually take a break right now and move that to the top of the page there. Yeah, may as well. It's because, uh, folks, we're ready to go. So get out there and get some bids going. Um, we have... Literally big often and bid high, folks. Please. I should yeah, mention that we've known Jan for a long time. Uh, years ago, Jeannie and I were invited to a science fiction convention in Tampa. I'm pretty sure it was. And we wanted to find a place to rent for, you know, hang out on the beach for a week after the convention was over. So it was for our daughter's 30th birthday, now that, now that Jeannie reminds me. And Jan drove us all, all over hell finding the perfect place. And we had a wonderful time. <laughs> and nice. I should it was also a wonderful weekend. I should also mention as part of her auctioning, auctioneering prowess that earlier in this process, don't ask me how, somehow she managed to auction off dinner at home with Harlan Ellison and Susan. Oh, my. Oh, my God. <laughs> I understand it went well. Wow. I, I spoke with Harlan. He said they were, they were more intelligent than I expected them to be. We had a great time. <laughs> Let's hope that's an omen of good things to come because Harlan will be our guest in a few weeks on our May 29th show when we do an author special on Fritz Leiber. Oh, boy, that'll be fun. And, uh, well, feel free to call. <laughs> uh, I, I just barely got to meet Fritz Leiber before he left the party. Uh, I was invited to a, a, a party for him at the, at the home of my agent. And it was a very memorable night. I met like half the people in science fiction that night, starting with Fritz. I met Alfred Bester. It was, it was one oh, my of those God. Things. By the time I left there that evening, I had the titles of all the Callahan books I was ever going to publish because uh, I, Alfie Bester insist, insisted on sitting me down and feeding me titles. <laughs> <laughs> and was Bester not an itinerant punster as well? 
He was indeed. He was indeed. <laughs> I knew Fritz for some time. I started off as a, a correspondent of his just when I was in high school and all through college. He helped me with a couple of my papers in college, actually. And then I got to meet him in 1986 um, and again in, in 19, uh, 1990, right before he left, so. Mm. He was a great gentleman. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and one of the few people I've met as tall as me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you play a much better guitar, I'll give you that. Well, thank you, sir. You're here. You know what I'd like, to, if, if anybody out there knows whether there exists any recording of Theodore Sturgeon playing the guitar, I know Ted plays guitar, but the time I met him, he, he wasn't willing to play, and I've never heard him play the axe. I just love, if anybody's got a recording of Ted Sturgeon playing, please send a copy care of my website. I'd love to hear it. Wow. Uh, you know what? Care we'll of your play website, it. care of our website. We'd love yeah, to we'll play it live on the show. Are you kidding? Fair enough. Fair enough. Really? <laughs> In any case, let's take a moment and talk about Bob Heinlein for just a minute. Peter, can I bring you in now Out for here. a second? You know, uh, absolutely. when we were at Boston Comic Con, and Peter's been a, a good friend of our show for a long time now. Dome. It almost feels like you're one of our family at this point. Dome. You. You're echoing like crazy. I am. Yes. Am I now? Step out of the cave. Oh, you did. Good. Thank you. Yes. Okay. There we go. Uh, <laughs> thank you, technocracy. <laughs> when we were at Boston Comic Con, I had mentioned that we were going to have this Heinlein thing happening. And, Peter, your eyes just kind of lit up. <laughs> I'm afraid they did. Uh, Mr. Heinlein's work uh, definitely transformed my life, uh, definitely for the better. He, he was uh, probably the nearest and dearest writer to the heart of uh, who the, the young lady I was dating at the time, who eventually became my wife, and I'm happy to say still is 20 years later. Yeah. Uh, and, and this would have been in the uh, uh, the summer of uh, uh, 1988, which of course that was the same year Mr. Heinlein uh, left all of us. Uh, and the, 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 the effects of the departure were still definitely with us. Uh, but my wife uh, uh, was lucky enough to uh, enter into a Correspondence uh, with Mrs. Heinlein uh, for, uh, for for a brief time, and it was uh, it was startling in its ordinariness. Uh, and I remember thinking, this, "What an amazing privilege that was!" Yeah. Uh, and out of that correspondence, uh, in, in that same respect, uh, eventually, uh, my wife and I uh, became aware of uh, Mr. Robinson's work uh, and uh, were steered to that. And my first introduction to Mr. Robinson's uh, amazing world was uh, uh, Callahan's Lady. Uh, which probably explains why I decided to put the professor and Sherry uh, into uh, my contribution to the uh, comic book uh, slam. <laughs> Very nicely, too, by the way. Well, thank you. I, I, I was hoping you recognized them. I wanted them to look like, uh, I just, I've always envisioned them as kind of like, uh, uh, kind of like 1930s, uh, uh, devastatingly handsome, square-jawed detective type, and then his kind of his Greta Garbo-style girlfriend. I don't know if I even came close to the mind's eye, but... You struck remarkably close well, to my own mental image. Yeah, that was wonderful. Oh, that then that 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 is gold to hear that, sir. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I, I even included the junior. I, I even included the junior Birdman badge. So. <laughs> uh, I've, I've actually got a, a, a Heinlein anecdote which is relevant to that book. Uh, the last oh, okay. time. I, 
The last time that I ever spoke with Robert, uh, he had I, I heard he had been hospitalized, and I called the hospital expecting to get Ginny on the phone, and Robert insisted on coming on the line himself. I hadn't meant to bother him at all, but he yanked the phone out of her hands and insisted on talking, and said, you know, "How are you doing? What are you doing? What are you What are you working on?" I said, "Oh, I'm you know, working on a novel as usual." And anyway, after about five minutes of conversation. Uh, I brought the subject around to, uh, I said, Robert, I, I've heard that, like, you know, your, your, your physical strength isn't what it used to be, and that holding a hardcover book has become a chore. Uh, that, I don't know if you've ever heard this stuff they call audio books. That's how long ago this was. I said, but if you, if you like, I would be perfectly willing to read any book you like onto cassette tape and mail it to you. I have a cassette recorder oh, right my. here, and I often do that. Well, you know, is there some book I could send you that you'd really like to, like to read? He said, what are you working on? I said, no, no, really, thank you. That's very nice of you. It's very polite, but uh, seriously, what would you actually like to hear? He said, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book about a whorehouse run by Mike Callahan's wife. He said, <laughs> and I, I sent the book, and Ginny acknowledged receipt of it about a week later, and I don't know. I never asked her. I never quite had the nerve to ask but there's just the slightest possibility that the last book Robert Heinlein ever read was something of mine. Oh, my. Oh, that is beautiful. That is wow. wonderful. Since the very first book I ever read was Rocket Ship Galileo. I was going to say, yeah, I, I recall reading in, in your biography that that was, actually it wasn't your biography, it was in a, uh, a speech that you gave. Ah, there you go. It's in Requiem, if I remember yes, correctly. Yes, it is in Requiem. When you talk about the librarian coming back with rocket ship Galileo and handing it to you. Absolutely. I've since managed to find out her name, by the way. Just for the record, that was Miss Ruth Siegel. Unfortunately, wow. I can't find any living relatives I can express my thanks to, but I was able to dig up the name of the children's librarian in Plainview, Long Island, in that year. Thank you, Ruth Siegel. If it weren't for her, I'd be working for a living today. Oh my God! <laughs> now it's funny because my father gave me the first Heinlein book uh, I ever read. So that's funny, Dome, because my father gave me the first Heinlein book. I ever. <laughs> also, the yeah. first Robinson book I ever read. Yes, I know I did. <laughs> wow. You realize hey, all folks? this evidence of child abuse? <laughs> hey, guys. Um, well, this whole uh, auction that we're doing tonight, um, it, it all sprang out of the fact that we wanted to do a special on Robert A. Heinlein. Now, for those listeners who are not familiar with Heinlein, for those listeners who think that Avatar is cutting-edge science fiction, oh, God. why? <laughs> Let me ask, just throw the question out. Why should I, if I've never read Heinlein before, why should I start reading him? Mm. Okay. Um, Question. He'll have fun. I'll, I'll start off with that one very easily. The very first book I read of Robert Heinlein's was uh, two novellas that have been, as as long as I can remember, always been bundled together, Waldo and Magic Incorporated. Yeah. Now, uh, Magic Incorporated was never a favorite of mine, but Waldo was. Because there was this this broken genius in the book. Yeah. And this poor man learned how to heal himself through his mind and technology melding together. And it's funny because uh, physically, 
over the past two years, I've kind of done the same thing. Ah. How so? Um, I was very, I've been very, very ill for a very long time. And through a series of operations and uh, physical healing and mental healing, uh, I am healthier now than I was when I graduated high school 45 years ago. Wow. Way to go. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been an incredible transformation for me. But it's, it's kind of part and parcel with the wonder of an eight-year-old kid reading that book at that time and, and going, oh, my God, realizing that my father worked for Martin Marietta at the time, was working for the space program, building uh, boosters for the, uh, the Gemini project. Wow. So he immediately started feeding me more Heinlein, Clark, and as, as I expanded, awesome. and, and Burroughs. I remember at the mm. age of 12 having the entire Mars and Venus series by Burroughs and just having devoured them. And then you copped oh, out oh. and got a BA in English. Okay, <laughs> you mean Edgar Burroughs as opposed to William. I just thought for a minute, wow, your dad was progressive. <laughs> <laughs> But if you, if, if you think about the history of what Heinlein, you know, he was born in 07. So yeah. he lived through a century. He lived through one of the most explosive technological centuries we ever had. He was an officer in the Navy. He was discharged from the Navy due to pulmonary tuberculosis. During his hospitalization, he began writing. He wrote all kinds of stuff. Uh, in 1950, De Destination Moon was produced, which he had written the story for, and I think it won an Academy Award, didn't it? Yeah, he did. Uh, wrote juvenile novels for Scribner's, married Ginny uh, Gerstenfeld in 48. It was his third wife. Yeah. <laughs> and married and stayed married to her for 40 years. One of the great marriages of all time. <laughs> I have to agree. And there's, a, there's an anecdote to, to Mr. Robinson that you once shared. And again, I think this was from Requiem when you stated that science fiction owes Mrs. Heinlein in so many ways by the, the behind, in the way she supported Mr. Heinlein and the gifts he was able to share. I just, I keep thinking of that sentiment and it brings a slight stinging sensation to my eyes even now. That was just, I think, because the most beautiful thing you could have ever said about her. Yeah, yeah. Ginny, Ginny kept him alive with her bare hands for quite a long time, and, and kept him writing mm -hmm. and happy. And that—that's no easy thing. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm—I'm I, gonna—I'm gonna read one thing, and then I'm gonna stop doing this shit and let you guys talk. Okay. <laughs> I We're swear to God, I am. But when I, I, used to, I used to teach English, and one of the te one of the things that I used to teach was a humanities class. And I would start the humanities class uh, reading an excerpt from Requiem uh, when Heinlein was the guest of honor speech at the uh, World Science Fiction Convention in Seattle in 61. And it goes like this. 
About 50 years ago, I was a small child uh, when something happened in my hometown that made a permanent impression on me. My family lived in Kansas City, and there's a large park in the south of town, Swell Park. Almost every Sunday in good weather, we'd ride the streetcars out there and enjoy the park. A man and his wife were walking across through Swell Park one Sunday, walking across railroad tracks that cut through the park, when the woman stepped onto a switching juncture and got her foot caught in it, stuck tight. Nothing to panic about. There were no trains in sight, and the line only carried a couple of trains a day. But she found she couldn't pull her foot out, even with her husband's help. And there was no one else around. They were working at it for several minutes when a stranger came along. A man, and now all three of them, straining and pulling. No luck. And now they heard a train coming. Too late to flag it down, too late to do anything, save continue to try and get her foot out. Of course, both the husband and the stranger, who had just happened along, could have saved themselves easily. But they didn't. Neither gave up. Both men kept trying and were still trying as the train hit them. The wife and the stranger were killed at once. The husband lasted just long enough to tell what had happened and died before he could be moved. The woman had no choice. The husband had a choice, but acted like a husband should. But what about the stranger? No one would have blamed him if he had jumped clear at the last moment in which to save himself. After all, in sober fact, the woman couldn't be saved. It was too late. She was not his wife, not his responsibility. She was a total stranger. We don't know that he even learned her name, but he didn't jump back. He was leaning over, pulling at this stranger's leg with all his strength when the locomotive hit him. He used the last golden moment of his life, the last effort of his muscle would ever make, trying to save her. We can't know what was going through his mind. All we know is that with no flags flying, no band playing, no time to prepare his soul for the ordeal, he did what he had to do. And the only conclusion I have been ever have been able to reach about it is this. This is how a man lives. And this is how a man dies. Amen. And, and Amen. I read that and it just resonates in me every time I read anything by him. His characters embody this. His work Everything that he'd ever done. So, are you saying that? that with it. Are you saying that the overriding theme of Heinlein's work is noble self-sacrifice? I'm saying that in every case, you have the character who embodies. This is how a man lives. Yeah, Jeannie's saying the point is that the point is to be of service. The, the, the thing that Robert didn't talk enough about to suit me was the covenant. I always wanted to know more about the covenant and how that worked. But one of the things I liked about the world of the covenant was that how people customarily greeted each other was with the words, may I do you a service? And I think and the, word, and the word privacy meant everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've noticed that. Um, I, I've been rereading a lot of his novels, just getting ready for tonight's show, and I've noticed that theme in a lot of the books is that it's almost like there has to be an organization that comes together at some point that says, okay, we need to get together in private like this so we can do the things that need to get done. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to find that he was a mason or anything, was he? 
it's unclear whether he was or was not a Mason. Uh, certainly he was good friends with Masons and he knew a lot more about Masons than non-Masons are supposed to know. Whether he <laughs> was actually... That can be said about a lot of people though. <laughs> and he had funny handshakes. And he yeah, liked Masons. Exactly. I don't believe that he te- that he was actually a mo- uh, one himself, but uh, I, you know, who the hell knows? <laughs> wow. You're right. There, there is a recurring theme in the sense that uh, uh, in so many of the dystopian novels, such as Friday or, or Gulf, uh, or, or uh, even a lot of the uh, the, uh, the crazy years, you know, the, the, the future history, there's always a sense that conventional institutions are breaking yeah. down. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. the, yeah, the yeah. conventional institutions—they've broken down, and then it's time for the the unelected, you know, just a, a plain old ordinary human being, you know, the the, the equivalent to Mary Madeleine Forsad, you know, the, the the French resistance leader who who was just a, a humble little librarian, suddenly just steps up. All right, this needs doing, uh, and uh, not stopping to think about, you know, whether it's approved of, whether it's officially sanctioned. It's just a case of, you know, th- this is now what needs done. You must now do the job that is in front of you, uh, and that is what. That is what's so again. It, it resonates. Uh, that this to beat that word to death, but uh, uh, it, it's it endures, and I believe it is influencing science fiction uh, and the way it is presented uh, even today. Uh, uh, certainly in Mr. Robinson's work, and certainly in even uh, you know, some of the more conventional uh, uh, movies and uh, television. In the same as regard, as well, it should. As well, it, as should. Well it should. A, I think it's a, a point that's been lost in in, in modern society. Absolutely. Not completely. There's still a few of us around. There are, Spider. There absolutely are. Hey, guys, let me ask you this. What is the first Heinlein book you should start reading? There's there's an argument starter. (laughs) I think that might have been the point. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Spider. The floor is yours. (laughs) Well, I'm... I wouldn't. I, again, I, I I couldn't answer unless I knew the something about the person I was who was asking. You know, it, it, it makes a difference how old you are, what gender you are, where you are in your in your educational process. You know, for instance, I'm not going to recommend to an eight year old kid uh, that he start with the moon as a harsh mistress. Uh, <laughs> right. There'll be a lot there that'll just confuse him. I, I think the first one that I read was Methuselah's Children, and I really enjoyed it. I think you're right. It was, yeah, unforgettable book. I I, I have for some reason stuck in my head the sentence: uh, his, his heart leapt across the span of centuries to the night his mother had died, and he wept the bitter, inconsolable tears of a child. And I remember reading that, thinking no one before in history could ever have written that line, but a, you know, a science fiction writer. And only one this good could have. So that, that that's that line has to be unique. That has to be brand new in literature. Absolutely. His heart leaped across the span of centuries to the night his mother had died. That's a hell of a line, you know? And he was capable of doing that all the time. Oh my god. I mean in Friday he, he took an artificial construct and made us not only care about her, but care deeply about her. Yeah, yeah. It was, just, it was just just what he did. He couldn't help himself. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I, I, he, the favorite thing that he ever did was uh, in the number of the beast. Yeah. For me, he totally bamboozled me because 
here we are, and we're seeing this group of four in this car that can slip through time and space and do all these things and go from not time to place, but when to when and where to where. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he's he's talking, and, and you hear a conversation between the two of them, between two of the four people, and I wish I could remember who it was, and I can't. And one says to the other, and then we stopped in this place where these stupid lights at each intersection, and they turn red, and people actually stop at them. <laughs> and it was then that I realized that he was writing this out of a fictional place that wasn't where we were. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, the book just kind of took a double flip for me, and I went, oh, my God, I don't know anybody else who would be... Who, who could who could have done that? He pulled off I'm lots told of that no one else ever has, or 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 ever will. Now that he's done them, you know, the classic example being the short story "All You Zombies." That's just all you. Hello. No one, no one has <laughs> oh, dead redhead. <laughs> Guys, I don't want to interrupt the flow of a conversation, but I have a really special announcement. We have our first bid. Good. It is on my very favorite piece as well. It's the uh, Kelly Yates uh, Doctor Who print with the sketch oh. of. Ted. Oh my God, is that a good piece? <laughs> I know it's one of my very favorites. So I, I hope it keeps going up. But I, it's a symbolic first bid, I think. Good to know. As we're talking about time travel, that's an excellent, excellent moment. Excellent. <laughs> nice. You can just imagine Gay Deceiver and uh, and Doctor Who meeting up, right? <laughs> Ooh, I'd love to be there for that. <laughs> I would be well, wow, that's awesome. That is that is freaking amazing. Mm. All right. Yay. Well, all right. So you know what? Let's let's take a minute then and just uh, focus on on the auction again. For those of you just tuning in, again, we are doing uh, an auction on eBay for uh, Gene Robinson and among the many artists who have contributed to it are Kelly Yates who has done an amazing Doctor Who print but also uh, Mike Mignola creator of Hellboy Sergio Reganez of Mad Magazine um, friend of the show Frankie B. Washington uh, Joe Linsner of Cry for Dawn I just there are and dozens, dozens more artists have contributed to this. Please, Sarah go. Richards. Don't forget Check Sarah. Sarah. Friend of the show, Tracy Please. Lee Quinn. Quinn. Oh yeah. Um, Went there. Vinton. Peter Vinton. Peter. You know. Well, yeah, you know. Yeah. Wait, I, we have to say that in reverent, humble tones. Oh, Peter good heavens. But, uh, Jan, can you tell them again where they can go to look at this? I think that the best idea would be to go to your website because that's a lot easier than having to do a search on eBay. But if you're familiar with having with doing a seller search, uh, the seller name to be looking for is Dream for Genie Auctions. It's Dream for Genie, J-E-A-N-N-E, Auctions. So also if you go 25. to sci- if you go to sci-fi saturday night.com it's right at the top of the page. Yeah. Good, that makes it easy. Yes. Yeah. So spider. 
In all the time that you knew Robert Heinlein, tell me the funniest thing you ever did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Probably sending him a book about a whorehouse. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I, I, I can just see him smiling, listening to it, can't you? Oh, absolutely. There are many things about Robert that would surprise people. Uh, I, uh, I recommend William Patterson's biography. It'll be coming out this August. It's called Learning Curve. Robert Heinlein in Dialogue with His Century, which is a gorgeous title. It really is a good title. Yeah. I just love it. Hey, Spider, after the show, can you send us his email? We'll, we'll try to get him on the show to push it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He'd be, he'd be overjoyed. Thank you. So, uh, Actually, Mr. Robinson, uh, this is Peter again. Can, can, do you mind if I ask you one question, Mr. Robinson, about uh, uh, specifically uh, about uh, Lady Slings the Booze? Uh, a couple of times over the course of the narrative action, uh, a, uh, a uh, retired admiral-type character that you describe uh, was uh, ice skating around the parlor uh, uh, with his red-headed wife and is later seen in the action talking sternly to a cat. Uh, I'm going out on a limb here and guessing that that was intended to, in fact, be Mr. Heinlein. Am I correct? Astonishingly, you've deciphered it. Yep, that's (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Always suspected, but it it was beautiful to see. Even as just like a little thrown-in detail and just embellished Lady Sally's place just that much more and made it that much more wonderful. So it was a great detail. Thanks for adding that. Oh, sure. I'm told that Ginny was a very accomplished ice dancer and that Robert, while not while not gifted, was caught, was capable of accompanying her on, out on the ice, which is impressive. <laughs> you know, I, I've watched my wife dance for years, but it never once occurred to me to lumber out there on the stage after her, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we, we boyfriends and husbands and, and, and male significant others, we don't have to dance well. We just, we, we just have to get out there on the floor with them. They don't, it doesn't have to be pretty. We just have to actually get up there and do it. <laughs> they make us look good. It's the thought that counts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hey, I have a question. Um, now, I can think of two Heinlein novels that were turned into films. Uh, Starship Troopers and the Puppet Masters. And uh, to be courteous, they stunk on ice. <laughs> what is it about Heinlein that does not translate to film? <laughs> Well, so far, no one's really made an honest attempt. In the, in the case of the Starship Troopers, the, the, the guy simply wanted to make a men fighting giant bugs in space movie, and someone told him, oh, you know, there's already a book with that, with that theme by someone named Heinlein, and he said, oh, all right, go buy me the rights. And apparently, uh, whoever was agenting at the time, probably Eleanor Wood, struck a deal that did make them you know, stick, like, retain character names and retain some plot details from the book. But otherwise, there would have been no resemblance whatsoever to the novel Starship Troopers because the writer and director had never read it and were completely disinterested. And, and if, they, if they had read it, they would have probably have made the movie to, in order to argue with it. To, to, Ginny was oh, yeah. overjoyed when that movie came out. It was, it was, it was a slap in the face to Robert. I thought, and I was outraged as many of us were. And Ginny was overjoyed. She said, "Every time a rotten movie comes out, 
books sell like crazy. They're reprinting stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That is we, so true. She, she would see the upside of that, wouldn't she? <laughs> Now, that that was actually my introduction to Heinlein, because I saw the movie and I hated it. And a friend of mine said, no, 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 you've got to read the book. Read the, And he handed me a copy of the book and he made me swear. He says, you will treat this book with the utmost respect and I want it back the second you're done. And I was like, I'm like, um, yeah, I'm sure you really want the big bug fight book bat. And I was like, like, whatever. And I was blown away by how good the book was, the quality of it. I'm like, my God, they missed the point completely with this movie. And it made me seek out uh, Stranger in a Strange Land because I heard that was the book I should be reading. And from there, it's just, you know, it was a matter of um, weaseling my way into Sci-Fi Saturday Night so I could have access to the Dome's library. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which which yeah, I, I will say that is the one had access to in my formative years. And I can't tell you how that has influenced me as the co-host of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. You have no idea. <laughs> wow. I think it, that one's influenced all of us. And I, I'll, I'll also go on record as saying that is the one movie adaptation I hope never gets made. Because there's no way it could ever possibly be done right. It would not do justice to the story. Well, there, now, was, there was talk in, in the late 70s about... Uh, who was David Bowie doing it? Oh, man. And he ended up doing uh, the Robert Tevis one instead. Uh, the Man Who Fell to Earth. The Man Earth. Who Fell to Earth. Yeah. Which Earth, that yeah. was kind of an interesting movie in itself, shall it we? Was a, it was a much better movie in Europe than it ever was when the, with the one they released in America. Mm. Mm. I've heard oh. rumors that Tom Hanks is interested in filming it, but it, oh. it was <laughs> <laughs> And what oh, part of the vision oh, itself, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to picture. About every 10 or 15 years, colleagues and I will sit down and discuss, suppose they did make a movie of Stranger, who would you cast? Oh, dear um, Lord. You know, it, the, the, who, the, the answers change every, every 10 or 15 years. As guys go in and out of the business. But we never really reach a satisfactory answer. We can come up with one or two characters at most, and the rest we just think of as uncastable. Well, okay, let's do it. You know what movie oh, I'd really right. like to see get made? There exists a script, I am told, for a movie written by Robert Heinlein called Abbott and Costello Move to the Moon. Honest to God, among his among the things in his desk, they found this this movie script about where what apparently the basic idea is that Abbott and Costello are making a movie about men going to the moon, but the director happens to be a science nut like Robert Heinlein who insists on getting all the details right. So, yes. in effect, they build a working moon rocket on the set just for authenticity. And, well, one night the boys are in there fooling around after hours and you'll never guess what happens. <laughs> oh, man. So, you're saying Robert and Heinlein invented far-out space nuts. You know, <laughs> breakfast... Dinner, lunch. I said lunch, not launch. <laughs> I'm amazed there's anybody that still remembers that show. Dear Lord. Illustrator <laughs> oh. X, you're showing your age. And uh, oh, and you're showing your youth and and lack of respect. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things about Robert that would surprise you. For instance, I'll, I'll bet not many people out there would have guessed that Robert Heinlein's music collection included all of the Jefferson Airplanes albums. You see, that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise, surprise truly, at all. 
I mean, you well, know, the political dead opposite of Robert Heinlein, the Jefferson Airplane with the, up the revolution, uh, you know, volunteers oh. for America. Uh, but as long as he didn't listen to Starship. We built this city. I mean, if he listened to We Built This City, this conversation is over right now. <laughs> Apparently, he had a thing for Gracie Slick. Oh, who no, was Apparently, he was crazy for Gracie Slick singing. Who knew? Wow. She had a heck of a pair of lungs. Uh, yeah, a pair of those, too. Yeah. <laughs> and Theodore Sturgeon once lived next door to David Crosby. Now, that must have been a neighborhood. <laughs> Oh my God, Kriana! Kriana, this, this is a history lesson for you, Kriana. Go look this stuff up on the interwebby thingy. <laughs> um, don't insult my intelligence. I know what's going on. Jeez. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lost. Okay. I, I had the dome's personal education, please. Uh huh. Okay, look. Oh, how painful! Can we talk about the David Matthews band? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of his novels, the science fiction grandmasters put into their work stuff, technology, that had they patented it, would have made them millions, billions, Arthur but instead Trump. gave it to the world. Among the things that Heinlein put into his work before they ever occurred in real life were automatic light switches in the man who sold the moon, hand dryers in yep. Coventry, drafting software in the doorway into summer, mobile phones, space cadet, moving walkways, roads must roll, solar panels, Waldos, screensavers even, <laughs> transit trans trans bay tubes. Uh, the the uh, BART system in San Francisco is based on the Transbay tube from Citizen of the Galaxy. Waterbeds and handheld vehicle key remotes. Even the doctor has one of those now. I know. <laughs> Over the course of his career, he published 50, 60 short stories, 16 collections, 32 novels. I mean... Is there any time, is, are there any people who have been more prolific? Well, there he is, for sure. Let's, let's face it, nobody's gonna, no one in our field is going to top Isaac Asimov anytime soon when it comes to prolific. I, I was about to suggest that very thing, yeah. I love Asimov, but that's another show, isn't it? But you've, you've got those three, Clark, Asimov, they were fountains of ideas, and they gave them away. You're right. You know, even in terms of science fiction, most of the science fiction novels ever written were basically rewrites of, of something that Robert did, or Isaac did, or Arthur did. You know, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Or once pretty in a while, Ted Sturgeon. You know, <laughs> we're all still standing on the shoulders of giants, and lucky to be there. Well, let me ask you this: Who, who, what authors have specifically said that they uh, drew their inspiration from Heinlein? I think pretty much all of them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much all of them. Philip K. Dick said once, uh, you know, Robert Heinlein. Once I was dead broke, and out of, out of the blue, he bought me a typewriter. 
He sent me a typewriter because he heard I was broke. He said, I disagree with every political opinion the man has, but that's who and what I love. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Two, two authors that leap to mind uh, that I, that I uh, have, would add to that list uh, as, I, I don't know if they were heirs or successors, but they were certainly heavily influenced by Mr. Heinlein's work, was, uh, would be John Varley, Absolutely. and to a lesser extent, uh, yeah, and also uh, L. Neal Smith. Sure. George Martin, too. Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. Let us not forget David Gerald. Absolutely. Ah, yeah. yes. Who, as we speak, is working on a screenplay for a movie based on uh, on the novel Stardance by G.D. and Spider Robinson. Wow. It's what a great segue. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, I really <laughs> hope that is made well. Can, can Those... I just say that that was also part of my, my dome dome education <laughs> as, I'm going, as oh. I'm going to put it. I, I read Stardance and I frankly adored it. Yeah, one, oh. one, one oh. afternoon sure. she was pawing through oh, my books going, what have you got that's cool for me to read? And you said, well, I haven't met Brian yet, or Illustrator X, so uh, I'll have to settle for Heinlein. No, I, I had a copy of Stardance. She'd already read everything by Heinlein that he'd ever written. Mm. And I handed her a copy of Stardance and I said, you'll really enjoy this. Those out there who don't know what the hell we're talking about and would like to know more <laughs> are, are recommended to a website called stardancemovie.com, which is oh, run fantastic. by Jeannie and her partner, producer, Jim Spasto, who was co-writing the script and, uh, and producing with David. And uh, the, it, one of the things, uh, the, one of the reasons for visiting that site is if you wander over to the blog section there, you can find video of Jeannie dancing last year at a benefit concert that was held for her here on Bowen Island. And there's all two oh, footage of Jeannie dancing. A little further up the page, you'll find some footage of Jeannie in zero gravity. Right on the home page, Jeannie says it is. There's footage of her dancing with, a, with another dancer, Kathleen McDonough, in zero G on the same 747 they used to train astronauts. Oh, how cool is that? That's cool. I'm a, I'm a, wow. <laughs> that was thanks to the generosity of Dr. Peter Diamandis, who donated a couple of tickets. I thought, what was it, $4,000 a pop, Jeannie? Yeah, $4,000 a seat that Dr. Diamandis di donated two seats so that Jeannie and Jim Spasto could take a camera and a dancer up there and experiment with zero-G dance for real before filming the movie. That is so cool. Fantastic. Oh, it's just cooler than a moose. It was the most amazing thing ever. Absolutely. And you'll see Jeannie and, and her dancer trying desperately to keep their balance in zero gravity. <laughs> Not as easy as it sounds, I fear. Well, see, part of the problem is when that 727 goes over the top of the curve and starts down, it switches from four engines to two. And you're never going to get both engines perfectly balanced. There's always going to be a little lateral thrust to one side or another, but you can never predict which side it's going to be or how much. So in other words, every time you go weightless, you take off in some sudden unexpected direction. And it's, it's, it's awful difficult to compensate for. <laughs> But they almost never give you a you know a perfect suddenly you're bing floating. It's always wow. suddenly you're bing flying that way like a you know <laughs> runaway bowling ball. <laughs> this is one of those this is one of those conversations where no one here can say yeah I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we'd like to. It's definitely one of those really. conversations where we're sitting here going, 
Holy crap, that would be so <laughs> cool. <laughs> if you got four grand, it's a great way to spend a day. <laughs> uh, of course, you got to get yourself to Las Vegas. But that I was I'll, I'll, I'll sign up tomorrow. <laughs> Good yeah, really. As I say, it never would have happened without the generosity of Dr. Diamandis. He's the guy who invented the X Prize. Oh, okay. okay. Oh. One All right. story he told us when we met him. The, whole, the first eight years that the X Prize was in existence, he didn't have no million dollars. He didn't have a million cents. He didn't have a dollar and a half to his name. He was bluffing. <laughs> oh my God. Up on stage with astronauts and senators and captains of industry talking about this million dollars as though it existed. And he was bluffing. And then one day he happened to read an article in Forbes about the Ansari family. And they mentioned that the Ansari family even had a woman named Anusha who was you know, very uncharacteristically interested in male sorts of things like space travel. And she really wanted to go to space. And she was planning to go to orbit herself. And he, he was on the phone to her five minutes later, and he had the, he had the X Prize. Like, kind of wow. just at the wow. damn at the time. But isn't that wonderful? He was literally doing the man who sold the moon. You know, he was following the storyline. Yeah, he was he was selling space travel, but it was all smoke and mirrors. It was all bullshit. Uh. God bless the man. I, you know, no one more perfectly exemplifies the spirit of Robert A. Heinlein, in my opinion, than Dr. Peter Diamandis. <laughs> and virtue has its reward. Now, you know, you can go up for you can go up for four thousand dollars if you want to. But his company is also now what NASA uses to train astronauts. Now that we no longer have the uh, orbital capacity ourselves anymore. Wow. Which is a crying shame. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but so so that in, you know, in order that we should be able to send people up into the spacecraft of more enlightened countries, uh, it, we, it's good to train them for zero gravity, and they'll be using Peter's 727 uh, G Force One for that very purpose. You know, as Robert said, we're going to space. It's just not certain that the working language will be English. Exactly. <sighs> wow. Yeah. The, the, the human race is definitely headed there. That, that, that's not in doubt. Yeah, no, there's the, just, uh, you know, the, the smart money has figured out there's bucks to be made up there. Sure. Oh, yeah. Again, oh, thanks to the X Prize. <laughs> Stuff like that works, man, you know? Lindbergh going across the Atlantic really did turn a lot of people on. I remember uh, Robert Anton Wilson used to say that, uh, what was it? You know, is the surface of a planet the, the best place for an expanding population that consumes resources? Yeah, really. And it was like, uh, no. And then he just went on to talk about how many more things are, can be done cheaper when you're doing it out in space. And it's like Absolutely. 10 to 100 power. I'm ready. I'll go. I'll take the next thing smoking. You know, I'll, I'll... <laughs> nice. So, Spider, I have a quick question for you. What's your favorite Heinlein book? Oh, uh, boy, hard to pick one. If, I guess if I had to pick one, it'd be Time Enough for Love. That's a great, <laughs> one. That's a great one. Back to me over and over again. I don't quite know why. Uh, the, the, the parts of that I can almost quote from memory. You know, the notebooks no, that last long, in particular, have, have uh, been great comfort to me in my life. You know, lines like uh, uh, "writing is not necessarily something to be ashamed of, but do it in private and wash your hands afterwards." <laughs> <laughs> well, what was that other one? Uh, uh, God is omniscient, omnipotent 
and omnibenevolent. It says so right here on the label. If you have a mind capable of believing in all three of those attributes simultaneously, I have a wonderful bargain for you. You know, I just uh, wrote down a quote from Stranger in a Strange Land uh, the other day. It was, uh, I found out why people laugh. They laugh because it hurts so much, because yeah. it's the only thing that makes it stop hurting. Yeah. What do you find about Heinlein that's, that's, that makes you just, like, stop and really ponder his words as opposed to tearing through the book? Lines like that. Lines like that. It's interesting. You know, there's been, in recent years, they've reprinted some of the original versions like the untouched unedited versions of robert's books you know his untouched manuscript and one of right. the things i was surprised to learn was that my favorite line in stranger in a strange land wasn't there in his original it was added in the rewrite while he was cutting out fifteen thousand words he put in the line that love is the condition in which the welfare and happiness of another become essential to your own uh, and afterthought you know, so there's something to be said for forcing the writer to go back and edit. You know, occasionally a second pass can can bring out insight. I've just always loved that line. Now, isn't isn't it that the, the fact that Virginia went to the publishers after his death and said, "We're going to bring these all out again in their original form"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that takes that takes some major league guts. That's Ginny. <laughs> I would hate to be the guy who was on the other end of that argument. <laughs> I can't believe there was any argument whatsoever. It was kind of, you know, I can imagine Ginny sitting sitting in, in some poor editor's room going, you go back, you take the original, because that's what's being published. <laughs> I mean, God bless her, because, you know, there, you know the original Stranger is about... I don't know, maybe 75 to 80 pages longer than than the final version that was published. Yeah. And uh, I can recall when when I was teaching lit that I had I'd made the bad mistake of trying to get my curriculum coordinator to approve me teaching Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh dear. And every year the answer would be no. And every year I would go out and buy the, the full copy, the full version, in the trade paperback, wrap it up in Christmas paper, <laughs> hand it to them and say, how about this year? <laughs> Which is even funnier because you're a Jew. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there goes the audience. <laughs> Was it something I said? <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing at all, Creole. <laughs> But, uh, no, it was funny, constantly trying to, you know, his work, as far as I ever saw, was so down-to-earth, so real, so non-controversial, and everybody saw such controversy in it. Yeah, yeah. You know, folks love to, folks, particularly science fiction fans, love to have tempests and teapots, you know? No one is quite sure why this is, but it's been long remarked that you know you, you, almost anything you do in science fiction is more controversial. Hey, that's kind of our our whole deal here at Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We can <laughs> argue about anything. Yeah, why right. not? It's fun. Apparently, people find it amusing to listen to. That's what we've heard. <laughs> 
you know. Yeah, um, it's, but, the, but, it, it is occasionally put about that Robert Heinlein was intolerant of dissent and only got along with people who agreed with him, and that's a total crock. Robert loved to argue. He just loved to argue. You know, if, if he had good arguments, great. You know, he, he was perfectly willing to have his mind changed on anything. I'm pretty sure right up until his dying day. Absolutely. That's so fantastic. Now, Spider, you're a pretty prolific writer yourself. What can you can you think of any of your novels or stories where you specifically thought to yourself, "Ah, what would Heinlein write here? Ah, that's what I'll write." I assume you mean other than Variable Star. Uh, <laughs> yes. Variable Star doesn't Assume that I've only read three of your novels that Dome forced me to, you know, under uh, penalty oh. of death to read. He's <laughs> like, if we're having him on the show, you're going to be familiar with this man's work or I'll kill you. You say it like it's a chore, though. <laughs> I, well, at first I'm like, all right, sure, whatever. And then I was like, oh, it's wonderful. Why didn't you tell me it's wonderful? And then he started punning. Thanks yes, a lot. he has he has not stopped punning for a month. Have much to answer for, and it's and it's all your fault, Spider. I must tell you. Well, yeah, I'm building up terrible karma for my next incarnation. <laughs> Just make sure your karma doesn't run over your dog. Oh, stop. Oh. oh wow. Oh. <laughs> Nicely done. Oh, yeah. So. So there was a novel of yours, though, that was specifically you thought, well, how would Heinlein have written this? Pretty much every one of them, you know. Uh, oh. uh, he's, he's always been my template. He, the first ten books that I ever read in my life were all Robert Heinlein. So that's, that's my blueprint, you know. That's my, that's my template for how this looks when it's being done right. Now, Pretty do you much. think that hurt you, though, as, as a writer, that, you, that uh, you didn't really find your own voice for a while? Who can know, you know? I, 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 I don't think there's anything wrong as an artist, whether you're a writer or an artist, by uh, starting out your opening template by following somebody else's lead. I mean, Lord knows, I, I've, uh, I've followed Michael Whelan's lead uh, plenty of times in my earliest pieces. Eventually, you do certainly find your own rhythm. Absolutely. But, uh, Every saxophone player starts out trying to be Charlie Parker, you know. And, and oh, that's true. Then after a while, he decides to be Sonny Rollins. And, <laughs> Very and true. And if he's lucky, sooner or later, he becomes himself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those comic book exactly. artists start off trying to be Jack Kirby. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you can see in my own early stuff you know, ways in which I'm consciously trying to diverge from Robert. You know, I, I don't think he'd have written a story where the you know, civilization ends because it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that wasn't his style. Probably not. Still my favorite. But again, they, they all end with the this is how a man lives sentiment. Uh, is yeah. hum, human beings are headed for better things. Uh, it, may, it may take a lot of uh, scratching and, and, uh, and clawing and biting and name-calling and uh, a whole lot of unpleasantness to get there, but ultimately the noble essential decency does come through. Yeah, there's a lot of one step forward and two steps back, but we still keep taking that step forward. You know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite quotes of, of all time and I use it as an auto-signal on my email from time to time, uh, and most people just kind of blow it off, is a Jubal Harshaw quote. Uh, Anybody can see a pretty girl. An artist can look at a pretty girl and see the old woman she'll become. A better artist can look at an old woman and see the pretty girl she used to be. A great artist can look at an old woman, portray her exactly as she is, 
and forced the viewer to see the pretty girl she was. Again, amen. <laughs> amen, brother. And I mean... I, I, I hope to reach his, that level before I die. <laughs> his work just sparkles with little gems of this kind of profound understatement that can easily get dropped off. It's just amazing. The older I get, the more I appreciate that line of Lazarus Long's. It's amazing how much mature wisdom resembles being too tired. <laughs> nice. I'm no smarter than I was 20 years ago. I just haven't got the strength for that bullshit anymore. <laughs> hey, we're talking about how Heinlein influenced all of us. And who influenced Heinlein? Who were his idols growing up? Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, obviously, Wells was a big one. Uh, I'm, oh, oh, well, there's... John Campbell almost certainly. Yeah, well, every, every, Campbell influenced everybody in the field, at least everybody in the field that wanted to eat. <laughs> uh, let's see. B Bill Patterson would be a lot more qualified to discuss Robert's literary li influences than I would, and I don't happen to have a copy of his manuscript handy, so I can't riff through it and, and use it as a cheat sheet. So uh, I'll, I'll refer that question over to the auto to Robert's biography, Volume One. Learning curve. Huh? <laughs> That's right. You know what? Just, just yeah. tell us any story, whatever comes to your mind when you think about Robert. What do you think about? Uh, the night I met him. Uh, the 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 night that he was given the uh, the Grandmaster Nebula, uh, the first ever Grandmaster Nebula. Uh, I was there. I could not afford a ticket. Yeah. Uh, it was held in New York City, and I lived out on Long Island at the time. And I could not afford the, the banquet ticket, but I worked a deal where I agreed to bring my guitar in and sort of sing for my supper. I would uh, do, provide a little musical entertainment before dinner, and in exchange, I got to come. So uh, this I did. I brought my guitar. Uh, when I got there, I, the, 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 the whole joint was full of science fiction writers, people who had only been names to me previously, and I was just, you know, pop-eyed with awe. There were the people who were, to me, god, minor, minor gods and goddesses around, and all the buzz of conversation was, hey, did you guys hear? That guy Haldeman is here tonight. That guy Haldeman is here tonight, and Heinlein's going to be here. He's going to cut him a new asshole for ripping off Starship Troopers for that, that Forever War book of his. And it was, everyone was primed for blood. They couldn't wait to see the fur and feathers fly. And I was there when Jim Bain introduced Joe Haldeman to Robert Heinlein. And Robert stood, st stepped forward and stuck his hand out and said, Joe Haldeman, Forever War, best book I've read all year. <laughs> and Joe slowly lifted up off the floor. <laughs> And then Jim brought me over, and Robert Heinlein said to me, Oh, Spider Robinson, I enjoy your Callahan's bar stories. And I don't remember oh. anything that happened after that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's got to be the best. It's absolutely uh, got to be the here's best. Another one, here's another one that comes to mind. Um, there was a time when Robert and I were doing business. I was I was reprinting a short story of his in an anthology that I was doing called uh, the, the the Best of All Possible Worlds, 
And I, I, writing to him on business, I mentioned that we had left our home in Halifax and we were now living temporarily in New York City because Jeannie had been invited to dance with a company in New York. And we had brought with us our daughter. And I had mentioned cheery conversation in my letter. As an aside, I mentioned that our daughter was feeling a little ripped off because she'd missed out on a birthday party because now her birthday was taking place in New York where she didn't know a soul. But what the hell, you know, life isn't perfect and I'm sure we'll make it up to her somehow. A little while later, the phone rings on her birthday, which, uh, how did he find out what her birthday was? I don't know. I hadn't mentioned it. On her birthday, the phone rings. It's Robert Heinlein. He, he says, put your daughter on. <laughs> I handed the phone to Terry, who was then, what, she, 10? Luana. She was then Luana, and she was then about seven, seven years old, Jeannie says it was. And he talked to her for about a half an hour. And I have no idea what they talked about. Naturally, the moment she hung up, we pumped her for what he say, what he say. She said, oh, I don't remember. He talked a lot. He said a lot. He was a very funny man. Uh, but, oh, I remember one thing he said to be sure and tell you. He said to be sure and tell you both that everybody gets two birthdays, one when the calendar says and one when they're with their friends. Oh. oh. And he said to tell you that and don't forget it, he said. <laughs> so sure, sure enough, she got a birthday party when she got back home. You know, and that we we continued that tradition in years and years thereafter. He was a very sweet wow. man. He was a totally sweet man. Wow. Uh, I, uh, I was uh, when I met him. I had hair long past my shoulders, and I had a beard down to you know cover the, the knot on my necktie. And uh, you know, I must have looked wild-eyed. I think I had John Lennon, you know, granny glasses. And I, 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 I must have looked in many ways like his worst nightmare, you know. And and yet he was a, a total, nothing but friendly and respectful, a total gentleman, a sweetheart from time, from start to finish. He was just, you know, that, that that that's that's how a man lives, as you said before. Absolutely, absolutely. He walked the walk. And there are very few that do anymore. Very few. Well, they, 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 just ain't, they just ain't making them that way anymore. Uh, that's not true. That's not true. They're still They're there. Still they there. just don't know it. Well, you know, someone They're once said. Not writers. Well, you know, someone once said of S.J. Perelman, before they made him, they broke the mold. <laughs> <laughs> before they made him. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, Robert was one of a kind. And the funniest thing of all is that the rest of the Heinlein family, they don't get it. You know, the whole rest of the family doesn't understand. They, they, to them, he's the one that didn't stay in the military. No, never had a career. What? His immediate family basically think of him as the one that never, never, never amounted to anything. They, 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 <laughs> science oh fiction goodness. stuff, they're aware of it, but it, it basically confuses them. You know? Oh my God, that's kind of horrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. So, the, so right now they're they're watching TV, going, "Did Robert invent Iron Man? Because he's making <laughs> movies." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ouch! That kind of hurts. <laughs> well, are you saying that everyone in your family understands you, Kriana? No. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. But at least they try. Yes, we do. Well, we try me, desperately. Uh, 
You know what? Earlier in the show, you said that there are like three phases of Heinlein's writing. Now, towards the end of his last phase, do you think that he was reaching for another phase? Do you think that, there, that you know, had he gone on, there would have been like a different uh, direction in his work? Oh, I'm sure. By now, he would have published at least three novels that blew the minds of everybody that read them. <laughs> He, he's the, one of those guys like Miles Davis who never stopped reinventing himself. You know? Well, it was funny because he, he took a group of characters towards the end. He took Maureen, he took Lazarus Long, and he kept dropping them in and out of novels towards the end. Uh, to Sail Beyond the Sunset, Maureen uh, talks about metaphysics and asks the question, why are we here? Where are we going? And then she says, you know, you're not allowed to answer that question. Asking the question is the point of metaphysics. Answering them is not, because once you answer them, you cross the line into religion. <laughs> Therein lies danger. Yes. So he was getting more metaphysical towards the end? Because, I mean, if you're going to talk metaphysics, Stranger came out in, what, 61, 63? Yeah. And, I mean, he had decades of novels after that. Yes, he did. Yeah, he was, he was pretty much always on the metaphysical side you know, when the wind blew that way. Hmm. Let me ask you this. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go. You you, you first. It's your dime. And, uh, <laughs> now, there's an expression that's about to become extinct. A dime? Yeah. <laughs> Who's using a dime anymore? What is yeah. a strange we'll, we'll concept of what you speak? <laughs> No, one thing I've noticed, just uh, the, like the only, I've only read about half a dozen of his novels, so, you know, if, if I'm off base, I do apologize. But one thing I see is an underlying sense of humor that really isn't picked up. And to me, the most uh, blatant example is the end of the Puppet Masters. And I mean, I'm going to actually violate my own law of no spoilers, but the end of the. Oh my you God. Oh, really? I was roaring at the end of Puppet Masters where we basically, one of the ways we defeat these aliens is through enforced nudity. <laughs> and, and I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. I was like, he must have had a blast writing this. Pure wish fulfillment, yeah. Is, is, is that something that, that is, I mean, does he just, is there that underlying uh, smug humor in all of his novels or, or more than the ones I've read? In a lot of them, yeah, where 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 appropriate and kept under kept under control. Yeah. Well, if you look at if you look at the end of Stranger in a Strange Land, they're sitting there, you know, cannibalizing Michael's body. And, yeah. And uh, Jubal Harshaw's comment is, yeah, "Could use a little salt." Yeah. Yeah. Always Local seasoning. Uh, uh, yeah, sci-fi Saturday night, folks, where cannibalism is is <laughs> just another really one. Just, another, just another amusement. What can I tell you? <laughs> so that's what our genre is supposed to be all about, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. Wow. Throwing zombies in the house. But uh, I mean, so I mean, what was his sense of humor like as a, as a person? He was a barrel of laughs. He he told great jokes. He loved to hear great jokes. He was he was, he was I, I I unfortunately didn't get to know, to spend as as much time as I would have liked in company with him. Mm-hmm. Mostly we tended to interact over the phone mostly uh, by 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 correspondence. Uh, all too seldom was I in a room with him and a bunch of people. But you know, 
boy, he could really run a party, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's a question. I mean, Dome here used to keep correspondence with Philip K. Dick, and uh, Dome, you've you've actually um, entertained us by reading some of those letters on the air. Are do you have any letters from uh, Heinlein that you treasure that you're just like, man, I'm never giving this up? Anything that he wrote to you in particular that you would just like have special uh, meaning to you? All of them. Well, I got I got a little box, you know, full of full of original manuscripts and envelopes. That, that that's oh not the archives. Oh my God! I saved them all. <clears throat> uh, the only other one that was going into the archives is one I got from Tom Waits. <gasps> oh. Um. Ladies and gentlemen, we are taking a break from our Heinlein special to discuss Tom Waits. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I, I, give us I the Tom quote, Waits anecdote. <laughs> I wanted to quote Tom Waits in a novel once, a book called Mind Killer. I wanted to use one verse from a song of his called $29 in an Alligator Purse. Yep. And yeah. I had, I had already climbed these stairs once before. I had wanted to use a James Taylor quote in an earlier book and got back word from his lawyers saying, certainly it'll, all, it'll only cost you $3,000. Oh, that was a substantial fraction of the advance I had received for the goddamn novel. So <laughs> I knew I was in trouble. So Jeannie's sister, Kathy, is a professional musician. She's in the union. She's got a musician's union directory. Uh, Kathy, at the moment, is running Dion Warwick's orchestra. But in the past, she has done this chore for people like Liza Minnelli and Sammy Davis Jr. And wow. She's uh, an old pro as one of them. So I, I borrowed her musician's union directory and found an address for Tom Waits and wrote to him and said, Mr. Waits, I'm a starving science fiction writer. I'd like to quote a, a, a verse out of your song here, $29 in an alligator purse. Here's the chapter with the quote in it so you can see how I'm using it so you'll know the context and I'm not making fun of you or anything. Uh, you know, uh, I haven't got much money. What can you do me? And I got back this wonderful crayon scrawled letter. You could almost hear Waits, you know, saying it aloud. It's a good thing you wrote to me instead of my managers, he says, because they're all scum-sucking flesh peddlers. <laughs> <laughs> I want to call my son $29, send me $29. So I sent him a check for $29, and he sent back a, a quick claim, and Bob's your uncle. And the, the, the quote appeared in the book, and the, 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 the tail end of this puzzles me. A year, a year later, I still don't get this. A year later, an envelope arrived in the mail from Tom Waits to us at a return address, Tom Waits, in a motel somewhere along the highway in, 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 outside of L.A., and inside the envelope were a single die from a pair of dice, like from a Monopoly set, red with white dots, and a plastic airplane, an amphibian with pontoons, and a matchbook from a gin mill on, on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Over the years since, I have racked my brains trying to crack the significance of this rebus. It's the secret of the universe, you know, or it's an invitation to the party to end all parties. Or, but I'm just not figuring it out. I, if it sounds else, like I, something Isidore Halbloom would have sent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, if, you, if anybody out there can figure out the secret riddle to this riddle, you know, I, I, I'd love to know exactly what it was. I, 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 after a while, I took three random objects from my junk drawer and threw them in an envelope and mailed them back to that motel, but I never heard nothing back from me. <laughs> If it was a puzzle, I failed to solve it. 
That is what was it again? A die? A, a die, uh, and didn't appear to be loaded or anything, just an ordinary die, uh, and a, a tiny plastic airplane, kind of thing that would come like as a surprise in a Cracker Jacks box, uh, where a little, little amphibian plane with pontoons underneath, and an unused matchbook from a gin mill on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. I can't remember the name of the joint. Might have been the thing. There's got to be a hidden meaning here. There's got to be some yeah. hidden to all this. <laughs> Beats the piss out of me. That's all I can do. <laughs> very, very strange. Very, he's an interesting man. I think we'll all we're all agreed on that. Oh yeah, oh, we're <laughs> such fans. <laughs> Isn't it interesting the, the, the crossover that you, you you know that you'd find Heinlein fans also being Tom Waits fans? There was a there was a time when that would have seemed unlikely, you know. Hmm. <laughs> More and more, I guess, we're becoming esoteric no matter what we do, you know? Have you noticed how it's supposed to be weird anymore? I, I, think, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a failing of, of, of uh, bad upbringing on all of our <laughs> Insufficient bad upbringing, right? It sounds like a George Bush. Oh, that's a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's well, the, uh, the weird is now the new normal? Yeah, yeah, he's got a, he's got, George has got a book coming out. Yeah, I understand crayons come with it. Wow. <laughs> oh, Mike. I, I, what, what could it be called? Starship Troopers 2, the battle for Iraq. Like, <laughs> George, no. With a forward by Dick Cheney. Oh. And a backward by the rest of the country. <laughs> this is my acme of surrealism. This is as weird as my life has ever gotten or ever will get. I found myself once in a room with George and Laura Bush, Dick Cheney, Carl Rove, Condoleezza Rice, and we're all sitting and listening in rapt attention to the guest speaker of the evening, Elmo of Sesame Street, who has just published a new book, My Life as a Furry Red Monster. Oh my God! Wow. Life don't get no surreal. That life don't Bill get no stranger than that. Brain just exploded. I think I think everything that I did back in high school just came back to me with a vengeance. What did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no! Don't repeat it! Don't repeat it! Max, how long ago was that? Like two hundred years ago? Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, if only, if only. Okay, Kriana, you have to realize he's still younger than I am. I know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, Don, what was it like crossing the Red Sea there? <laughs> it, we, it, actually, I parted the Red Sea, but we're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, one, one of the odd things about Heinlein is he never attacked any situation, any problem, uh, head on. He always took it from an oblique point of reference. Mm. You know, he, he... Outsider looking in. He, or he attacked it in such a way as, as one would never expect. I mean, who would have thought, you know, in, in the first reading of Stranger in a Strange Land, that Valentine Michael Smith goes on to found the Church of All Worlds? And that's what does it. That makes no sense at all. And yet, in retrospect, it made perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, in Methuselah's Children, the Howard Foundation 
steals the, 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 the ship, goes off into space, comes back, o- only to find out that the, the Earthmen have discovered their secret, which wasn't a secret. That shit's all hat. Exactly. <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> I mean, it's just absolutely... You know, and, and time and time again, um, I have been sitting down for the past couple of weeks kind of rereading a lot of a lot of stuff as I've been throwing novels at X at the same time. Ow! Yeah, I'm glad it hurt. <laughs> and I realized that maybe the most fun book of his that I ever read was Citizen of the Galaxy. A beauty. An absolute beauty. And yet it was considered a juvenile. Lot 97, a boy. One of the most unforgettable openings, you know? Yeah. And and Thorby Redbeck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful to take you from literally from one end of the galaxy to the other, you know? Unbelievable. I mean, you know, like, to the people so out, to the people out there who are listening, we we've dropped the names of about 20, 25 novels here uh, over the course of an hour, an hour and a half. And if only a third of them are resonate with you as having been read, get your ass down to a used bookstore. Or a library. Or a library. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, right. that's, that's where I found Philip K. Dick uh, when I was uh, totally destitute and out of work. And I walked into a public library and would spend my afternoons there. Yeah, um, when you weren't rich uh, off of this podcast, right? Oh, yeah. I make so much money doing this. <laughs> <laughs> or for you highfalutin folks, if you want to go to Amazon and get a Kindle and uh, no, load no, this don't, stuff don't down do on that. Kindle. Don't advertise for them. No. Don't, don't <laughs> get a Kindle. Get that. yourself. Yeah, there, there, there are better ways to do, do it than that. But. There's not enough of Heinlein books available for Kindle yet anyway, guys. Sorry. There are? No, there are. Man's been pirated since before it was easy, you know? Hey, guys, I, I just want to say, if you have to, if you have to patronize an ebook establishment, however way you would like to do that, I am not encouraging illegal behavior at all, really. Really, I'm not. Um, but go for the ePub <laughs> format. Support open formats. It'll benefit you in the long run. Here, it benefits here. everyone in the long run. Here, here. Yeah. If, if, if we were talking before about you know, anecdotes characteristic of how influential Robert was on his time, Jerry Cornell likes to tell the story that uh, uh, during the Apollo program, uh, there, there came a time when a whole gaggle of reporters were at Houston being shown around and were given a personal audience with Lyndon Johnson. And as they were all gathering around Johnson asking questions, a door opened at the far end of the room and Robert A. Heinlein walked in and everybody left Johnson standing there barefaced and, and, ga- and gathered around Robert. <laughs> wow. That will give you an idea of who, you know, who had more influence on putting a man on the moon, uh, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson or Robert Heinlein. You know, everybody that, 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 that had anything to do with NASA read Robert Heinlein, you know. NASA was an avid reader of Heinlein, Clark. Um, that's seemed, my father, who worked for the space program, you know, constantly was feeding me this stuff. 
And my father, who had a BA in English, was constantly feeding me this time. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. So, Spider, as, as we're heading towards the wrap here, and I mean, we could do this for hours, and I'd love to do this for hours, and I'd love to do this again. Uh, let me just say right now, anytime you feel the itch uh, to come back on with us and just talk about whatever the hell you want, bring Jeannie, bring your wife, uh, bring your guitar, bring bring whatever you'd like, and, and join us. You have an open invitation. Thank you kindly. That's a, that's a sweet invitation indeed. I'll take you up on it sometime. Oh, Thank you had better. <laughs> <laughs> we will hunt you down if you don't. Is there anything about Bob Heinlein that you want to leave our, our listeners with? One, one last thought, one last idea. Hmm. The last thought to leave, I, uh, Jeannie just said it, his love for Jenny. They had one of the most amazing marriages ever. <laughs> Aww. Uh, Jeannie, by dumb luck, uh, got to hang out with Jenny for a whole day shortly, not, not, not long at all after Robert's death. Uh, she, she was coming down from a, a spiritual retreat at Tassajara Mountain Zen Center, which is way up on a high peak. And her ride from there to the airport had, had fallen through. And the only person she knew lived anywhere nearby was Jenny Heinlein, who at that time was living in Carmel. And she called Jenny basically asking for a ride to the airport. But Jenny ended up bringing her home. And she spent the whole day wandering around looking at Robert's word processor and, you know, staring at his, his discharge papers. And, and she got to see the, ca the cannon, the, the, the famous cannon, and all this stuff that I would have killed for, you know. <laughs> Uh, but, and Ginny spent several hours just literally crying on Ginny's shoulder, so, you know, talking about how much she missed Robert and how how deeply she missed him, and what a, what a wow. hole he left. Uh, you know, that was it was one of those marriages. Wow, Spider, I I cannot thank you enough for being with us tonight, for giving us some insight into one of the grandmasters of science fiction, from the mouth of of one of my hero writers, which you have been since I can remember. Thank you so much. Well, bless your heart and several other vital organs. <laughs> <laughs> Many of which are now working better thanks to Robert Heinlein. Peter <laughs> and I thank you all for the auction. God bless you, one and all. Particularly all of the insanely great artists who contributed. Yes. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Robinson. This uh, has been an honor. Thank you very much. The help is deeply appreciated, and we thank you. Yeah, and we want to thank everyone who's helped uh, hype this over the last few weeks. Jan, especially you. You've gone above and beyond. We really thank you. Uh, we thank Yvonne Daly at Callahans.org, um, Corey Doctorow at Boing Boing and Locust Mag, everyone, uh, Chris at Double Midnight, dmcomics.com, Thank you all so much for helping oh, spread brown the word. Coats. Don't forget the yeah, brown, the brown coats. coats are Don't forget the brown coats. People, they, they totally put it up everywhere for their members to see. Yep. And Frankie B. Washington, you've been helping uh, hype this all over Facebook. Thank Scott you. Scott Wagner as well has been uh, posting it on his website. Yep. And all of our Facebook friends. Yes. yes. We love Absolutely. you. Yes. And our real ones, too, who aren't made up. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'd like to thank Jan Schroeder for joining us tonight. Jan, thank you so much for everything. It's been a pleasure, and I appreciate everything you've done gathering up all this wonderful stuff. And guys, go out and buy it. Yeah, please <laughs> bid. It only works if you bid, so... And, bid high. And bid Peter, awesome. Peter Vinton, uh, friend of the show, gifted artist. Thank Peter. you for joining us tonight very much. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute honor. Uh, I'm going to hype this, uh, hype the, uh, the, the bidding myself here. <laughs> this has uh, been very humbling. Thank you very much. And thank you, Mr. Robinson. Right back at you. The feeling is mucilage. <laughs> and Jeannie, I can hear you in the background. Yeah. And thank you, sweetheart. Oh, I enjoy this this wonderful time. Thanks for letting eavesdrop. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to eavesdrop any damn time you want. <laughs> oh, wait. Do I have to do the coming up calendar here? Hey, give us a coming up calendar, would you, X? Ladies and gentlemen, on May 8th. Why, that's tonight. Never mind. On May 15th. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> On May 15th, we wrap our charity auction with the return of Jan Schroeder, and we also are speaking to Ed and Adrian Ludwigsen of WhatHappenedToSarah.com. May 22nd, we are having our Granite State Comic Con special featuring director and producer Michael Dougherty of Brown Coats Redemption. And on May 29th, our author special continues. We're doing a Fritz Leiber tribute that night featuring special guest... Harlan Ellison, who uh, will be sharing duh. his opinions with us. That... <laughs> and don't forget, you can, fine. <laughs> you can meet the Sci-Fi Saturday Night <laughs> in person on May 23rd. Don't make me laugh. On <laughs> Comic-Con. Check out the guest list at dmcomics.com. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of the Boston Comic-Con, the Granite State Comic-Con, and of Comic Art House, your one and only source for original comic artwork. Visit Bob and Kim at ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And a special thank you to Bob Shaw and Kim Mullen for helping hype tonight's uh, auction as well. And, and all donations. the work that they did. All and the work donations. they did putting it together. Absolutely. Usually we're live from Area 51 tonight. I'm parked outside uh, an undisclosed location somewhere in New York State, the former site of Callahan's Crosstime Saloon. Uh, uh, my RV will be pulling out in about half an hour. I see the state police have been driving past every couple of minutes. Uh, I will be back in Area 51 next uh, Saturday night. I told you to put that red flag out the other end. I, I know, and I keep forgetting. Uh, <laughs> there's this thing that keeps floating. Oh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> from the Alston Brighton Hellmouth outside of Boston, Kriana. Thank you, my dear. This show has been legend. Wait for it. Wait for it. Dairy. Dairy. <laughs> <laughs> From the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, Illustrator X and the Dead Redhead. Thank you, guys. And thank you for a new Tom Waits story. I, oh, I yeah. love collecting those. <laughs> Mary, Indiana, our Midwest editor, Java. I, hey, remain, I remain speechless. It's been yeah. <laughs> it's it's really been one of those kind of like speechless nights. <laughs> Spider, there is an open invitation to you from this day forward to the day in which we go to that great bird of the universe. Anytime. Uh, all you need well, to do is drop us an email, give us a call, whatever you want. You're here. 
We well, are you all. You don't even have to email. Just sign on to Skype on a Saturday night and say, "Hey, Kriana, let me on the show," and I'll be like, "That's cool." Yeah, absolutely. We are, we are all Water Brothers here. <laughs> if, there are, if there are any fans of the artist Don Heck out there, yes, you know, Don used to work for Marvel, uh, Iron Man, Ant Man, and a bunch of things. Uh huh. If there are any Don Heck fans out there, I'm kind of curious to locate. There, there was a time when I to make money to put myself through college and keep myself in dope. Uh, I, I posed naked for art classes, and there's a portrait of me in the nude by Don Heck out there that I'd certainly love to see again. <laughs> wow. wow, that's a way to stop a show. <laughs> oh, my brain just flipped over inside my skull. <laughs> I haven't laid eyes on it since, uh, I guess it would be somewhere around 1969 or 70. <laughs> and that's the note on which we end our podcast tonight. <laughs> yes, it is. I am the dome. <laughs> saying, and what am I going to say tonight? I'm going to say, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute and the Good night, everyone.